I'm Josh Cooperman, and this is Combo by Design. For this episode of the show, we are making a virtual stop in another American destination that is renowned for design, Arkansas. I know what you're thinking. I get it. Keep listening. Sometimes the heart and mind of a true pioneer allows them to see the opportunity right where they are and eliminate the journey altogether. Chris Goddard is one such design pioneer who happens to be based in Springdale, Arkansas. Because he is based in Arkansas does not mean that that is the extent as it relates to location for his work. He's an international designer with TV cred as well. We talk about his design journey beginning in Arkansas and extending out into international design. As you listen, pay special attention to his approach and philosophy regarding the work. You will notice some through lines in thought that directly reflects what many of the incredible talent internationally has to say about the work. One lesson here is that you cannot judge great design by its location, although many still do. The other is, as we emerge from this amazing and highly disruptive moment in time, states like Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Kansas provide a lower cost of living, higher quality of life, and the same ability to work as LA, New York, or Boston for a fraction of the cost. Seems pretty attractive, right? Wait until you hear Chris explain it. If you are not already subscribing to the podcast, please do, so you get every episode automatically when they're published. You can find Confo by Design everywhere you find your favorite podcasts, and now you can find us on designnetwork.org, a destination dedicated to podcasts, all things design and architecture. So make sure to check it out. And if you need some help, ask Alexa or Siri for help. Just say, hey, Siri, play Confo by Design podcast, and she will. It's funny, by the way. Side note, every time I say that, S-I-R-I starts playing the podcast. It's funny. Just proves it works. Convo by Design is presented by Walker Zanger, a fantastic company and an equally fantastic design partner. While the Walker Zanger brand was built on the promise to inspire designers and architects to do their best work, there's far more to it than that. Yes, that promise is fulfilled every day through a commitment to provide the best ceramic, glass, stone, porcelain, and concrete surfaces and finishes. But at the heart is a family-owned and operated business that provides stunning surfaces for a well-designed home and does it to make designers and architects do their best work for their clients. Walker Zanger started in 1952, and they are absolutely one of the best trade partners a designer can have. Check out their newest collaborative line with designer Pieta Donovan, a collection of cement and ceramic tiles inspired by the patterns and colorways of the 1970s and created with a comfortable modernity. Walker Zanger is on the cutting edge of design, featuring products for every style and architectural feel you can create. And they provide homeowners with the materials that dream kitchens and baths are made of. Check out any of their 14 showrooms across the country or shop online walkerzanger.com. When it comes to Born Ready, I was excited to talk to you about designing in the particular geographic location in which you find yourself. That's actually where I wanted to start. Oh, sure. I was having a conversation with somebody recently, and we were talking about, I basically said this, if they were to draw a map 
of the United States from a design perspective, right? Right. LA, New York, Seattle, Dallas, Houston, maybe a little Austin, a little bit, Atlanta, Miami, DC, tri state area, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and then dapple in a little bit of uh, Aspen. Some, mm-hmm. some Denver, some, Col- <clears throat> some Colorado, a little Wyoming and Utah, just in some very specific locations for probably about 10 people in particular. Right. And that would be the design map of the United States. That's perception, right? Yes, but not reality. <laughs> no, no, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so I, I find that interesting. So you're in Arkansas. This is my 35th year in Arkansas, which is shocking. I've been doing the open my firm when I was 21 years old in Northwest Arkansas, which is mind boggling. Tell me, tell me about design in Arkansas and tell me about design in Arkansas from your perspective and, and why you stayed there instead of doing what conventional wisdom would be. And that is to go to an LA, New York or San Francisco. Why there? Why Northwest Arkansas? What, what is it about Arkansas that kept you? Well, what's so fascinating is, is I went to school here and I had no plans on staying. I always wanted to move to LA and do like set design or move to New York and kind of do the traditional route. Um, And while going to school here, when I graduated, I was working, um, doing windows at a really nice men's store. And a lady walked in and just happened to say, wow, who does the windows? And I was like, oh, I do. And she said, I'm needing some help at my house. And I said, Sure. And um, I went over and I didn't know you were supposed to charge. Very naive. Um, Had gone to school for business because most creative people have no business skills. And when I went to college, design was in the home ec department. So, you know, this was before computers, cell phones, no way to Google anybody, nobody to really find out much other than we did everything by hand. But this woman, um, her husband had passed away and it was a massive house. And I went in and did my little thing. And her assistant called and said, Mrs. Blank um, has left you a check. She'll be back in a year and wants you to do the whole house. And I was like, okay, um, let's do this. But um, after I worked a whole year, not knowing I was supposed to charge for doing my work and buying everything it cost in wholesale, um, not being you know, real savvy in the design world because I'd interned and done some things. But my first major project, um, she loved it. And the fun part of the story, then I'll get to how I ended up staying here, is that she had interviewed two major designers, one from New York, one from L.A., and then this little nobody that had just graduated school and was doing windows. And because I had no fear and I didn't really wasn't intimidated by who she actually was and who I found out later, um, I went in with unbridled enthusiasm and um, creativity And after that, she had me sign a nine-year contract with her family to do all their corporate headquarters, planes, boats, um, everything all around the world. So I spent nine years working for one major family in the area that kind of launched my career into like the stratosphere of A, an insane amount of work, but B, the world of NDAs, which I soon learned about quickly. Um, because when people own these huge companies and factories, they don't want people seeing how they live, that they're paying you know, minimum wage, so, which is kind of awful. Um, so Northwest Arkansas at the time, we didn't have a regional airport. We 
I used to have to drive to Tulsa to get stone. I would have to drive to Dallas to get materials. I would drive out through the woods looking for woodworkers and carvers because the money was so new in our area. And everybody's like, well, what new money? Well, when I opened my firm, Walmart had recently gone public, which is the largest retailer in the world. Um, we have Tyson Foods, which is the largest poultry and beef producer. And then we have JB Hut Trucking. And all of those are within a 20 mile radius. Um, I was the only designer really at, in the, at the time um, in the area. And I was ballsy enough to think that these people that don't really know how they spend their money need somebody to teach them. And why I became the prophet of design and high-end luxury, I have no idea. Because back in the day, I simply had luxury magazines. And, you know, I had grown up in a family that believed in travel and the arts. And I was, for what I thought at 21, pretty intelligent. Looking back, I was just really savvy and a good hustler. Um, I think like most creative people that have lasted this long. Um, and, you know, I've always believed in surrounding yourself with the smartest, the best, the brightest. Um, and I was put in positions where I was put on a jet and flown to New York and I would have to go find people to do things because without an internet, and this is so hard for people to believe that work for me now, they're like, how they look at projects I did in the eighties and early nineties. And they're like, how in the world did you ever find all these artisans and carvers and woodworkers and resources? <clears throat> and it was kind of the highlight of creativity because we actually had to use our brains. We couldn't Google stonemason and blah, blah. You know, you actually had to go out and find them and meet them and learn the process. Um, so there was no fear back then. And I think I probably did. Uh, we can talk about this later, but I, some of my best work, which nobody's ever seen because of all these NDAs, some of it was actually photographed for Architectural Digest when I was 21, which is mind boggling, um, is that it was all based on creativity and a lack of resources. And I think it made me a better designer. Um, had I been in a big city, I don't think I would have pushed myself as much because I would have had a little bit more and surrounded by other creatives and other mentors and people to help me. So I kind of started my own brand, my own style out of this little mountain town that is now, you know, the number five place to live in the United States right now. And with one of the best economies, which is frightening, but <laughs> it was one of those right place, right time. And, you know, I always say you have enough talent or you're lucky to get in the room, but you have to have enough talent to stay in the room. And I've been in the room for 35 years. So that sounds a little braggadocious, but it's the truth. I mean, you know, you, you make the most of any opportunity. <clears throat> Yeah, no, absolutely. I com I completely agree. I, I think it's interesting too. Um, the territory where you are, and it's so funny too. You say this 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 large family of of very wealthy clients in you know Northwest Arkansas. It doesn't take much to figure out that it can you know it can be one of three families, right? And, yeah, right. and pretty <laughs> yeah. it, it it indicates you know there's some indicators telling you which one it probably is. That being said, I, I'm curious. For how how that works for you, because I know what you're talking about when you're saying, you know, I, I think there's a huge advantage to being in a place where design didn't exist. And then all of a sudden it did exist. Right. And there's virtually no competition for the work because there's nobody else doing what you're doing. By the time everyone else gets there, you've already got a legacy. You've got you've got a history. You've got a body of work in the region and at the same time, to be able to build 
a roster of trades for you to draw from is incredibly valuable. The, the mind sort of goes to, does that, I, I've, I've often said, I, I think that um, when I started the podcast, you know, eight years ago, I would, I would say, and it, I don't think it was, it was a, a stupid thing to say, just very pedestrian that, you know, I would ask, I would ask designers. So like, what is your style? What is the, what is your favorite style? And it took me a couple of years to realize that, that really, really great designers don't have a particular style because you design to the taste of your client, but there are through lines and there are, there is a fingerprint and there are certain things that the designer will do intentional or unintentional that leads to sort of consistencies in the work. And as I look at your work, um, on the website is in particular, it's really interesting to me th- that there are so many different styles and there are so many different styles covered and so many different elements to, to the work. Do you feel like you had to go outside of the Arkansas area to learn? Or do you think that because digital basically happened at the same time that you were developing your firm, that it, it sort of helped you learn that way? Um, I think... The biggest influence on me and on probably any creative is travel and meeting people. And early on in my career, I was fortunate that because I had access to be able to travel to go work on corporate headquarters and other homes, I was exposed to so much. And you can probably tell I talk a lot. So I'm going to talk to anybody. And early on, that's the only way you could ever find anybody because you'd be like, hey, that's a beautiful door. Who made the door? So, you know, design, and this is what I talk about a lot when I give talks, is great design starts a conversation. So I've met the most fascinating people ever through design because it's usually going, oh, where in the world did you get that? Oh, how did that happen? And in my design, it's all about storytelling. And that's what we start. And that's kind of what you see through all my work is there's no two rooms that are alike, but there's a lot of times that when people come in or I want people to go either, what the F were you thinking? Or where in the world did you get that? Or where did that inspiration come from? Um, You know, I think when designers and people start with a theme or a trend or a look, it's the kiss of death. And there are a lot of great designers that it's like a three to five year lifespan. And the number one question kind of like you asked me is how in the world are you, you lasted 35 years and been successful. And the deal is, is that I'm always evolving, always changing. And I'm not one, I'm not a big social media person. I'm not big on looking at what everybody else is doing, because I find when you're competitive, you get caught up in worrying about everybody else instead of what you can do. So I'm always pushing my team because they'll show me, well, this is inspiring. This is inspiring. We could do something like this. And I'm like, why are we trying to do something like anybody else? Why aren't we doing our own thing? Which is still a really odd and hard thing to do now because we're so hit with images and design inspiration constantly that it's hard to not replicate. But like I tell my team, everything's already been done. Just how in the world are we going to rethink it and make it cooler? You know, like in one big commercial project that won an international award recently, you know, I flipped the room upside down and did the paintings on the floors. And, you know, it's all about perception. So I'm big on pushing way outside the comfort zone 
My favorite saying is if you're not living on the edge, you're taking up too much space. And I believe when you're right on that edge, that's where the magic happens. Um, I got real comfortable kind of halfway through my career because it was easy and I could just continue to crank things out. And then I saw myself falling in this rut of, wow, this is not challenging anymore. And, you know, I think we all hit that. I, it was probably like a design midlife crisis. And, you know, it was either buy a yellow Lamborghini or do something stupid. So <laughs> I was like, what are my choices here? Um, so I, I'm constantly reinventing myself and trying to shake it up. And that's either by moving offices, getting a new team, expanding, trying something new, um, you know, doing something super unexpected. I mean, you've got to constantly as a creative shake yourself out of your comfort zone. And I think for all of us, that's the hardest thing in the world to do is not to be comfortable because A, we're worried people aren't going to like us or like our work or feel rejected. And the design world is filled with so many freaking snobs and everybody judges everything we do, especially now with social media. Um, so I'm really big on kind of trying to break that stereotype that design is about what I do for that person. And if they love it, who cares what anybody else thinks? Um, you know, I don't want design to be about sheep and about people following trends. And like you were saying, great design is about creating a look that's like, oh, wow, Josh, this is your house. Who looks like you did it, not like Chris did it. You know, that's insulting for me when people come in like, oh, this looks like a Chris Goddard project. I want people to come in and go, wow, this looks just like you. And this looks thoughtful and like consideration went into it and feel free to tell me to shut up. Cause I will ramble on forever. So. No, I, I, I won't because it's, it, you know, that's when I usually catch on to certain things and, you know, to say that you would be insulted if somebody said that it, it looked like a, like a Chris Goddard room, you know, I'll take exception to that a little bit only because I do believe that there are certain through lines. There are certain things that, that certain designers will do, certain designers will use. You know, I'm, I'm looking at some of your work while we're talking. And I like that's I am, a lot of color. <laughs> it is a lot of color. I am, I'm a really big fan of show houses, design houses, decorator showcases. I, I'm, a, I'm a big fan because I, I believe that they're, they create this opportunity. It's, it's to me, the design house, the show house is kind of like the auto show for the right. automotive industry. You know, it's like the consumer electronics show for, for, for those nerding out on, on new tech. Right. It's, it's one of these places where you can go and, and find something inspirational and aspirational at the same time. And so I'm looking at this symphony designer house from 2018 in the hotbed of design, Little Rock, Arkansas. And what's, I don't know that I would look at this space without having known that it was you, but having looked at your work enough now, there are certain elements to this that are, that are definitely reflective on the the manner in which as a creative you express yourself right so and i want to get into the work in a, in a little bit but i kind of want to touch on something that you said about the through the advent of social media the the snark and the commentary you know i don't know what it is chris but um 
prior to the last 15, 16 months, I don't recall seeing, I've seen people snark out on designers in the past, but I always expect that because the uneducated will always, you know, throw barbs without thinking. But I've seen more from inside the industry on social in the last 15, 16 months. And I'm not sure why that is, but it feels like the space is getting more combative. Is that just me? Um, It's become very, it's this weird hierarchy and it's gotten a little snobby. Um, And it's basically, it's so funny. I always compare it to rappers. It's like East Coast, West Coast. (laughs) Where do you fall? Um, I fall right on the edge of crazy and fun. And uh, I want to talk about this design house because it's the nicest compliment somebody ever messaged me about what I did there. But I find that designers are competitive and I always tell everybody there's enough work for everybody. Um, a lot of people are, aren't comfortable with, they feel threatened or that there's competition or that somebody's going to steal a job or somebody's going to see something somebody else did. And there's also a level of, well, I only do mansions. I only do this. I only do that. And if you're a good designer, you'll do anything. If it's a challenge, we do everything from, small little apartments because if I meet somebody and they're really cool and they want to do something totally wild I'm in or we do massive commercial projects and huge projects all around the world and I'm one of those designers that I take it on based on the project and not really the snobbery of it or the price tag it's based on the creative challenge because the people I want to work with are people that don't want what everybody else wants and There are a lot of designers who get a little snarky, like you said. And I think a lot of that just comes from insecurity and fear um, that maybe beige is going to go out of style. I don't know. I mean, everybody's got a fear. Um, But when people, I mean, you know, any of us, when we see something different, it evokes some kind of emotion, but it it has gotten bad. And um, we'll probably talk a little while, but, you know, I went on and did a design show on HGTV at the pinnacle of my career. And it just, Talk about the snobbery from my peers. It was mind boggling to me. Um, The comments I got from taking such a big risk. And again, that risk was more about pushing myself and less about what anybody thought. So if that made sense, that rambled. No, it makes, it makes perfect sense. But back to this, this symphony designer house, one of the things that you did, you know, you're going for this Moroccan style. And so you've got, these hand-painted canvases around the exterior of the space, which, which actually, you know, you're, I, what I love about this in particular is that you're tenting, you tented a room, not from the outside, but from the inside. Right. And I hadn't seen that before. And what it did was it took all of these different elements where you could have used wallpaper, which, which would have given it sort of this impressionist, realistic kind of perception, but instead it's, you know, you, you know, that this is artistic around the exterior and it adds, it adds to the whimsy. It adds to the, to the theatrics of it. And, and between that and the fabric on the club chairs, I mean, just, there's so much going on here. Yeah. There's a lot of color, but it, I, I, the inspiration I think is, is what moved me in this space. And it all seems to work just so seamlessly well together. Well, what I did with that and the biggest compliment is you, nobody's brought this up in a few months, but a few months ago, I got the nicest DM on Instagram and they're like, we go to design houses all the time. And we saw yours on 
your website. And it's one of the ones that actually felt like a design house was supposed to be where a designer went in and was creative instead of filling it with things from a showroom. And my whole point when I did it was, is I wanted to do something that was artful, people hasn't, haven't seen before, and expressed me as a designer of something and taking the unexpected. And we actually just, and it was, you know, design houses are expensive. So I took just basic canvas that you buy at Lowe's and we painted it to look like Moroccan street scenes. And then I just tinted the whole room in it and then kind of built, it was an entertainment lounge, which was huge. It was the biggest room in the house. It's a media room and decided to make it like a casbah. So everybody that walked in through this big tinted drapery that was hand painted was transported. They were in basically, a, we call them McMansions, you know, a 15,000 square foot horrible box. And where every designer had, you know, done a room that was basically wallpaper furniture from their showroom or, you know, all beautiful rooms, but nothing unexpected. And my favorite part was watching people's faces when they came in, because you could tell that what I like to achieve is when you walk in, you're transported and you didn't feel like you were in suburbia in a McMansion anymore. You felt like you were in somewhere special. And everybody in my room sat in the chairs and became talking and were interactive. And the rest of the rooms were so museum-like that nobody got comfortable. And all the other designers would come by and go, why is the party always in your room? And I was like, uh, you know, it was, again, creating a space where people felt comfortable, felt transported, and felt, you know, felt like they could relax. And to this day, I mean, when I got that message, and it was, they'd been to another design house, and they're like, why aren't designers trying harder to do things that are different. And I think it's because of social media, they're afraid if they do something too crazy, somebody's going to say something hateful about it. Um, you know, and it's a fear. And I'm one of those designers that doesn't really care. I'm just like, let's just go for it and see what happens. Um, yeah, well, but listen, the, the fear is real because yes. the struggle is real when it comes to that because somebody will say something snarky oh, and stupid. Yes, you know? always, always. Yeah. Um, so it's... It, also, at the same time, I, I feel like you have this amazing canvas in the region where you are because you've got, you've got resources within a four or five hour drive, one hour flight. You've got the internet. You've got your local resources that, that you've been right. able to procure and, and put together. So now you've got what all of these other major design cities don't have. And that's land and space, because that's the one thing they're not making more of. You know, you go to L.A., you can find a refresh, you can find a new build, you can find an infill project. Aside from that, you're not you're not really going to find anything new. But you have that at your disposal. We ha And we have a lot of it here. We have. I think we're now the number one place where people are moving in the United States. And a lot of that was created by Walmart because again, they're turning our area because they want new young talent to come. So if you've, you've probably heard about crystal bridges, we have one of the top museums in the world. We have more bike trails than anywhere in the United States. Um, we have one of the best theater programs. We have the top architecture school now in the United States, the Faye Jones school. Um, we have all these award-winning things that are happening and it's all based on the Walton Foundation dumping billions of dollars into our infrastructure to create kind of a hybrid of Portland, Austin, New York, because young talent 
wanted to go east coast west coast here we are with our gang rivals again but now everybody's wanting to move to our region because a you can buy a really nice house and a piece of land for which you can get a teeny tiny apartment in the city for or and then we also have a lot of executives transplanting here who have multi-million dollar apartments in the city and they sell it and they come here and they can buy an entire farm with a mega house on it. Um, so it's been fascinating to see that transition. And, you know, I've been here 35 years back, you know, a long time and the growth and the expansion is mind boggling. And when Crystal Bridges opened, I've have been selected. I do design exhibits for them, which a lot of designers don't get to do in a world-class museum like that. Um, again, which is more exposure and more creativity because in doing that, again, outside the box, like a design house, I worked with the museum and I wanted people to learn that you can live with art. So when we did the exhibit, we actually designed living rooms so where people can sit down with the art so that they could understand that, hey, I might not be able to afford a museum piece of art, but I can buy real art for my home, which I'm really big on. So my whole partnership with Crystal Bridges was teaching people that, hey, I may not be able to live with museum art, but it is art. And that translates into your brain that art is livable. I don't need some cheap print from the mall unless invest in a $200 piece of art at the farmer's market because it's an original. So when I designed those spaces all throughout the museum, it was living rooms with music. And so you could sit down and interact with the art instead of walking by it and thinking it was something that was unapproachable. And I think high-end luxury design is a lot like that. And people see it in magazines and think, oh, wow, that looks really gorgeous. And I could never afford that, which isn't true. Um, I teach my clients that, hey, we may not have a zillion dollar budget now, but let's buy one really nice thing at a time and build something beautiful instead of just add water rooms and working with the museum i had the same approach let's teach people that let's buy real art let's buy things that are real instead of dumping money into cheap disposable crap that's going to go away i don't know if i'm allowed to cuss on here but anyway so you you know we're not disposable furnishings make no sense to me and not living with something that was created by hand and that's part of my dna from being in the Ozark Mountains is I used to have everything made by hand because I didn't have a choice. So I worked with so many artisans that that's probably a thread you'll see in my work is that there's always handcrafted things throughout the project that, you know, have a little bit of soul and history. How do you navigate that, especially now, because it, it takes so long, uh, you know, until the supply chain frees up a little bit, it's taking so long to get specified product delivered, uh, you know, that what you're, what you're left with is really the fast fashion version of furnishings, you know, that, that it's just, it's produce it quick, produce it fast, produce it cheap. Um, there's a lot of people that buy that. I, I don't, it's not a blame issue, but I, you know, I, I think what this philosophy that the millennials sort of espoused for so many years while, while living in their parents' basement, which is a joke, but it's also, there's, there's a lot of truth to that too. They didn't buy houses. They weren't interested in paying exorbitant rents. They had an opportunity to live at home and to, to save that money for whatever, for, for the experiences that they wanted instead of the things. So they would buy one nice thing, one beautiful piece, be right. it a watch or sneakers or whatever it was, but buy one nice thing that they loved and then if it was furniture, then surround the rest with Ikea and CB2 and okay, 
Well, I think what's happened, what's fascinating to me is we always hate what our parents said, right? Nobody <laughs> ever wants what they grew up with. Um, so the millennial generation, they didn't want anything their parents said, which that would be more our generation, my generation, where we wanted nice things. We would take time, build rooms, buy things we loved, buy things that meant something to us. They wanted disposable and they wanted to travel. Well, you know, I'm a little greedy. I want it all. I want nice shit and I want to travel and I want to go to restaurants. I want to do it all. But the generation after that, um, which I, I guess now they're calling the granny chic millennial, which I'm loving, the maximalist, is that now they're going back and they're wanting nicer furniture. They're wanting antique rugs because they see it as sustainable. Whereas I see it as, thank God, we're finally getting some nice things that you don't put together, you know, in your living room. But it's this, and it's that cycle of design. After 35 years, I've seen so much come back and come and go. And now that I'm seeing the really younger generation is fascinated by antiques and things, old art. I mean, because again, it's sustainable. Um, and the generation little bit older the millennials they're realizing that everything they bought because they were home with it during the pandemic was crap because it fell apart it wasn't comfortable it didn't last and all those clients that we really weren't in touch with are now reaching out to us because they're like hey chris maybe we do need a good sofa because the one we sat on for a year is miserable or the headboard's falling apart or you know there nothing lasts because they didn't invest in quality and design is seeing a huge resurgence now because so much time was spent at home that people realize that we need to invest in comfort and quality and everything your parents said about buying a nice sofa it'll last you forever is actually true <laughs> because when you invest in quality it lasts forever um and it's been wonderful for our business now what's hurt is the timelines like you were talking about and now people are having to wait 90% of what I do because I've done this so long as custom so I have work rooms that I own and we run um, so we you know design build 80 90% of everything we do um, and we had a nice stockpile of back of foam to all the things it takes to build and I kept my workrooms open, social distanced as much as I could during the uh, pandemic. We were one of the first ones to actually take our fabric samples and mass produce masks when there was a mass shortage. So I put all my workers doing that right when the pandemic happened so that everybody could keep an income and do something that was beneficial. Um, but supply is hard. I mean, if you want a refrigerator now, good luck. I mean, anything that has a chip in it from another country. You know, we have so many projects right now, they're on hold because we can't get appliances. We just can't get anything that's run or has any kind of technology base to it. That's where we're seeing the biggest issue. So, you know, and it's, it's, it's interesting too. Now you can get a fridge, you can get a refrigerator. Yes. You just, you just can't get the high quality one that you want that good design calls for. Yes. And even some of the cheap ones are hard to get. I mean, we're having a hard time finding anything just to fill a space till the really nice one can get in. Is that uh, right? Yeah. I mean, if you want, went to Lowe's and wanted to buy one, good luck. You know, it's hard. Um, dishwashers, anything like that. I mean, that's it's, it's really an odd time. Um, windows. I mean, anything that's manufactured overseas or has parts from overseas, the lead times are exorbitant. And, you know, we do a big chunk of work out of the country. So we've had projects that have been whole, on hold over a year. I mean, we have clients living in half-finished construction sites because we weren't, we weren't able to finish projects on islands and in other countries we do. 
um, you know, and it's stressful and it's hard, but you just kind of deal with it. And it, it's funny because during when we had a huge freeze, my house, all the pipes burst and I'm kind of like the cobbler's kids. I have no shoes. So I've lived in two rooms in a big house with no walls and no sheetrock. And you realize that you can actually live really simply. I mean, I don't want my clients to figure this out, but you don't really need a lot. Then, then don't, anybody. then you want to make sure not to say that on a design podcast. I know. And I just did see you got me talking, <laughs> but as a designer, I was like, Oh shit, I don't really need, you know, 16 rooms, but. No, they were pretty to walk by. Uh, so. so, so let me ask you this: What have you seen? What are what are your clients asking you for now that maybe they weren't asking you for before? Um, before, you know, the biggest expense when you're ever you're doing any project is anything where there are lots of textiles involved. Um, and now I'm seeing them really wanting better quality fabrics, better quality, more comfortable furniture. Um, the dining room is back. You know, we, I love a dining room because it turns into an office. It turns into a study area before so many clients were like, I don't need a dining room in my house. I'm also seeing when we're designing because we're doing so much new build. Now our people are going back to um, less of that whole open floor plan. People are kind of over it because they realized working at home, having everybody in one big room kind of sucked because you could hear everything. Nobody had any privacy. Um, so we're also, you know, separating up spaces a little bit more so people can have their own zones and have a quiet space, a workspace, a together space. It kind of goes back to good design that was around forever. There was a reason houses and homes and big spaces were separated just so that you couldn't hear everybody talk all the time. Mm -hmm. You know, a lot of good design is based in common sense. Um, And, you know, an open floor plan is beautiful when you come in, but you know, if you have two kids home for a year and you're trying to work and do homework and cook dinner, it can be a little stressful. So. It's true. It can. I'm also interested to know, because in looking at your website, as we're talking and looking at the projects, you know, I see everything from a chateau. I'm, I'm seeing the Packard Point Ranch, which is, which is a wonderful cottage with just amazing detail to the Tripoli, which is a, a completely modern project right. to the, your Fayetteville penthouse, which could easily be a Manhattan penthouse. It yeah. could, it, it could be there as well, or in San Francisco or in Santa Monica, California. Right. Does, is the Midwest developing a style unto itself? And, and I, I say that specifically because there's, there's so much history architectural history and so much, you know, you talk about, you know, in visiting Tulsa quite a bit and working on a project there, seeing the amount of, of incredible architecture that's in a city like that, that, that nobody thinks about, um, you know, and knowing that, that, you know, this, the Midwest is dappled with Frank Lloyd Wright's and just, you know, colonial revival and Spanish revival and, what you had was during the during the oil boom, you had these from both coasts, you know, you had these oil barons coming in who had this vast wealth of knowledge from their travels and they just created and crafted. And so you've got this, this rich architecture and design history. And now you've got this, this second revival, if you will, where there's this opportunity 
to 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 craft is this is this a renaissance for for the for the midwest in particular and if it is is there a is there a style that goes with it maybe not an architectural or a design style but maybe one that is more based on lifestyle as we're starting to experience now well like and it, you can you can harken back to when you're talking about People always call it buying good taste. You look at people like William Randolph Hearst, who amassed huge collections and hauled it out to California and built crazy huge mansions. And I think that's we saw that happen in the Midwest with oil and trucking and chickens and every other thing that the Midwest is known for. And it's funny because when I travel, um, people are always like, wait, you're from Arkansas. What in the world is in Arkansas? Um, last year, I got the International Interior Design Award at the, from the Royal Academy in London, and I was getting this big International Design Award, and I was sitting at a table, and they thought I was just a guest, and when they announced it, and I sat back down, and they said, wait a minute, you're from Arkansas? What? And I was like, well, have you ever heard of Walmart? And they're like, oh, now I get it. Um, but what, pro- what project was that for, by the way? Um, it was for that chateau you were talking about. Yeah, mm-hmm. the chateau won it, International Interior Design. And then that Triple um, E won the ASID Award of Excellence. And then the Penthouse won the Interior Design Society Designer of the Year Award. Um, so those are all really wonderful. I got a lot of recognition for those projects. Um, but talking about the style of the Midwest, it's like this huge melting pot, like California, everybody knows California style or East Coast, you know, every, there's a certain look. And I think what happened in, in the Midwest is people traveled so much that they brought back their favorite pieces. Um, I always call it either visual clusterfuck or design clusterfuck because there's a little bit of everything. <laughs> <laughs> which I love, which is why my work is so representative of ultra modern to a French chateau is that people in the Midwest aren't scared to mix it up. And, you know, you'll drive through really prominent neighborhoods like in Tulsa and you'll see this really beautiful, they have a fabulous Frank Lloyd Wright house there. And then next door will be this huge Mediterranean. Then there'll be a French and, you know, you, there's no specific look. It's based on personal taste. And that's what I love about the Midwest is everybody isn't afraid to just do their own thing. And we have enough land where there's not a lot of organized neighborhoods where like if you go to certain parts of New York, everything looks alike or L.A., all the bungalow, you know, there's a look to everything. And you don't see that a lot in any of the big cities. I mean, you go to Houston, Dallas, all of it's so different. Um, And I think it's because people weren't afraid to. They were like, hey, I've got the money. I'm going to do what I want. you know, and then you see a lot of knockoffs of that as you trickle down to different neighborhoods and smaller things, but all the bigger, more important homes, they're all very different, very stylish. And again, it's influence from travel. Like when we first started talking, that's where all my influence came from. And, and, you know, Chris, I, I, I love the way you think I, I really do. And it's because it, it's fun. This is fun for me because as we're talking, I'm, I'm looking at images from, from the Chateau and, uh, a couple of weeks ago, and it's funny too, because this chateau is in Rogers, Arkansas. And on 300 was, acres in the middle of town. I mean, who would have thought? It's <laughs> amazing. And I was thinking because a couple of weeks ago, I was having a conversation with that's recorded, it's going to be coming out shortly with um, Timothy Corrigan and Kyle Bunting. Right. And they just collaborated on, on drugs. Yeah. What's that? 
On those beautiful Chateau collection rugs. Yes, I just on the Chateau, some of those. Yes. Between the Boule and the and the Arbasson. Now, have you have you seen those? Have you yes, you I, know? yes, yes. I'm a huge Kyle Bunting and Corrigan fan. Um, and the those rugs came out and we're doing another project they were perfect for. So I ordered several of those. And I okay, so I love this because it just my my sort of mantra for the year, you know, it started about 15 months ago, has, I, I have to keep re reminding myself to think differently. And I'm, I've been consistently reminding myself, you know, think differently, just think differently. And I'm making choices uh, for the podcast and for some of the other content that I produce. And it's really paying off because there is a feel there's a feeling out there now where people want to engage differently, you know, and talking about the, this collaboration and this partnership between Timothy and, and Kyle and the way that you're working as well. Thinking differently seems to be the way that we're going right now, because I think people have gotten to the point where they realize, like, if you want to think the same, you're going to get the same. Right. And the ones who are having success right now are the ones who are, who are pushing the boundaries of of what we've what we've been doing and i really feel like because it's been so hard to get product for someone like you who created your own workrooms as soon as there was a problem you basically just turned it all internal and you could still do what you want how has that changed you for for the next 20 years well it's when we first started this, if you remember, I had to create everything on my own when I first started because I had no resources. So the pandemic, as horrible as it was for creative, like you're saying, it pushed me back inwards and you kind of get in fight or flight and you discover your roots on why you did this and how you did it. I mean, I used to build paint. I mean, there's none of it as a creative because when I first started, I wanted to be trained in how to do everything. So a subcontractor couldn't tell me something was wrong. I could see if it wasn't. So I had the skill set and I just kind of forgot because we all get lazy. I mean, the more successful you get, the more help you have. You know, we kind of, the sad thing about having a big design firm like I do is you become more of an administrator um, and you're kind of more of a head creative and less hands-on. And during this, I've become all hands-on, which a lot of my team probably hates because I'm on top of them all day long going, what about, what about, what about, what about? Um, but it revitalized my energy because you have to be more creative. You have to think way outside the box. Again, back to my whole points of living on the edge because you're pushed. You either have to survive and figure out how to make it work because there's 800 other talented designers behind me that want my jobs, want what I'm doing, and that will take those if I can't figure out how to solve a problem because the people I work for have zero patience. They're like, Pana, what? I mean, they don't, they don't care. They're, you know, it's like, I want my stuff done. How are you going to get it done? And I think as a creative, it's pushed all of us, as you found in talking to people, into figuring out how to make different things work or problem solve in a whole different way that doesn't involve Amazon delivering it overnight. I mean, that's the bottom line. Or calling Wayfair, because, you know, they don't always got just what you need. So... <laughs> <laughs> and I'm just saying it's true. And, and part of, and part of that is sometimes you don't know what you need until the designer tells you what you need and then shows you how to get it. And then it makes all the difference in the world. 
there was, um, I love the saying, you give the clients what they didn't know they wanted. And I think this has forced a lot of designers to have to do that because that, you know, and people go between this whole snobbery of designer, decorator, what's the difference? And a lot of people are used to having a toolkit of boxes like this. So if you've got three table choices, you've got this, this, and this. And I think it's really weeded out the true designers because they're the ones who have had to create and think. And the ones that are more formulaic or just decorate by numbers, it's really pushed them and forced them more into the design zone. Um, which I'm loving because now everybody's being more creative and learning and talking. And, you know, a lot of people in my business don't share their sources, but I'm the first one to be like, Hey girl, you ought to go down the street and see what so-and-so can do. Um, and most people keep all their sources to themselves. Cause again, they're afraid somebody's going to steal them. But I think it's forced all of us in this field to have to learn to be more sharing. And that's one of the positive things of social media is we can find resources easier um, you can see where designers are getting things. I mean, most people in our field tag everybody and their resources. And it's made it a whole lot easier as a creative to be more creative. Yeah, I think that's true. I, I think at the same time, I do understand the fear uh, and, and the, the trepidation when it comes to sharing, you know, it just my own personal perspective, having been a contributing editor for a while and having produced the podcast for, for eight years now, it's really interesting to me how on occasion, which is becoming way more frequent since, you know, many of the magazines started jettisoning um, contributors and editors uh, that I will, I will produce a, a concept, you know, I'll produce a panel conversation or something like that at one of the events I program. And then a couple months later, you'll start to see those stories appear elsewhere in the industry and at first I got, I got upset about it. Right. And then it was kind of like, you know what? You, you don't get upset about it. If you're the creative who's coming up with the ideas, because you've, you've got a, you've got a well from which to draw, to do it again and to, to do it in, in other and unique ways. And then I started thinking, and I think this is where you're going with it too, is there's actually a value to that because then it keeps you from remaining stagnant. Well, it pushes you again, way out of your comfort zone. And the weird thing about, I've got, I've been doing this so long that I used to have to send slides in to get published. You know, we would have to have a photographer come. They would, you know, it was a whole different world of design. Um, the first cover of traditional home I was on back in the eighties was from slides we sent in and they came and shot it. And, you know, there's been this weird turn in publications. A, there aren't as many. Um, B, you're not published as much. Uh, if you're a designer like me who works for people who don't want their work seen, um, you don't get a lot of street cred. You know, it can bruise your ego if you want everybody. If you need the recognition, it's hard. It's like I told you when I travel, people are like, why the hell are you at this party? Uh, <laughs> so, you know, the way people see your work is so different now. Um, it's more based on followers and content and, you know, wonderful things like you doing podcasts allows designers like me and other designers that are established to be able to talk because, you know, as you know, most magazines that are still left are just going to quarterly. So that's 8,000 super talented designers trying to get in four pictorials and five magazines that are left. And when I first started, you know, there were hundreds of design and decoration and home and lifestyle magazines. 
And so much of it's digital now. And to get on that digital is based more on followers and how many likes it's going to get to push that. You know, it's it's become a machine that's not so much based on the design content as it is getting people to follow somebody else doing that. It's a weird world we're in right now, like you were talking about, and then you'll see your things pushed out. But the world of designers getting their designs out, I'm still trying to figure out because it changes every day. It does change every day. But the beauty is that we're always having these conversations to sort of help move the ideas forward. And, and with that, Chris, I, I cannot thank you enough for, for taking the time today. I absolutely love this chat. Thank you. Okay. Oh, that went by fast. <laughs> I know, right? We didn't even get to talk about me being on HTV and all that crazy stuff I did. So we'll have to do this again. I, I would I would love that. That would be great. Yeah, but, uh, but it's a fun story how I ended up doing that. So, Well, that you know what? Tell me the story real quick. How does a designer from Arkansas wind up on the reality show? Um, this is the wildest thing ever. It was the middle of the pandemic. I kept getting phone call after phone call. My uh, one of the girls in my office kept saying, this is HGTV and they want to talk to you. I'm like, somebody's playing a really bad prank on me. Um, uh, then finally they Googled the production company after about the 10th phone call. And they were like, oh shit, this is real. You need to call them back. And I thought, well, things are slow. What the heck? So I called and they said, we'd love for you to come out and be on a show. We can't tell you what the show is. We can't tell you anything. We need you to sign all this paperwork. I was like, what do I got to lose? This could be fun. Um, so within two weeks later, they called and they said, hey, we want you to be on the show. Zero audition, nothing, just based on them having read about me, seen me doing a quick phone interview. Um, I end up spending five weeks in L.A., get out of the car, find out it's a reality design competition. I'm like, OK, this is going to be fun. So fight or flight kicks in and I'm like. And I won the first competition. I was like, I got this. And it taught me that your base skills uh, are there and that in any circumstance you can survive. It pushed me and challenged me and made me a better designer. Since I got back from filming that, I have been better, more creative, more open to new things because pushing myself so far outside my comfort zone in front of a worldwide audience where I could either sink or swim or humiliate myself um, and already being established. All I could think is I'm going to screw up so bad and I'm going to be so fired when my clients find out what I did. And it turned out being the best experience. Um, we get calls now from all over for jobs. We probably get three to five calls a day just on people that saw me that won't. I mean, it's crazy. Um, but what I took from it is, is that you have to constantly push yourself. I mean, no matter where you are in the, or what level of design, if you don't jump out there and try something new, you're going to stay stagnant. And it goes back to the whole topic of our whole thing is pushing yourself outside your comfort zone. Yeah, no, it's, a, it's absolutely true. And that's a great story. And what I love too is, again, you know, the, the recurring theme from the conversation that we're having is just sort of this, this constant state of reorganization, reinvention, reorganization, reinvention. The fact that you can't just sort of rest on it, you have to keep moving forward. I kind of feel like share of design because I'm always reinventing myself. <laughs> And I'm always on some reinvention tour. This is the last time Chris is going to redo himself, but no, it's not. <laughs> so. 
<laughs> well, I can't wait. I can't wait to see the next iteration. Yeah, the next tour is going to be great. You'll have to come front row seats. Uh, you're involved. <laughs> absolutely, I love it. Okay, thanks Chris. so much for talking. That was fun. Thank you, Chris. I really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you, Walker Zanger, for presenting Convo by Design. Thank you, Thermosol, for your partnership. You are both remarkable partners, and I'm, I'm lucky to be working with you. Thank you for your support. And thank you for your support. Thank you for listening. As you may have noticed, Convo by Design is bringing you design talent from across the country. And it's not just about LA and New York, but now Arkansas. Thanks again for listening. Remember why you do what you do, and that the business of design is about making better the lives of those we serve. Right? Until next week, be well, and take today first. Mm-hmm.